Deuteronomy chapter 19, if you'll join me there as we continue our study through the book of Deuteronomy together. In this section, we're uh, looking, as we have been in some of the recent chapters regarding the civil affairs uh, in Israel, sort of how they were to handle their social and civil affairs in regards to the judges in the land, the kings in the land, uh, how they were to execute certain proceedings that would take place among them if there were uh, issues socially among there or violations of the law and so forth, how were they to handle those practices. Uh, we pick up here in verse 15 toward the end of chapter 19 where we left off last time uh, with that subject matter in mind. And here God instructs them through Moses that one witness, chapter 19, verse 15, shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity uh, or any sin that he commits, but by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. So God here institutes this aspect of government and judicial proceedings as well as if somebody to report somebody being guilty of some sin or some crime or wrongdoing uh, God says that there needed to be and again this was of course to safeguard the nature of humanity and the the sinful tendencies that exist among people that God understood uh, that were just one witness coming forth and saying this happened or that person is guilty of that uh, God said would not be sufficient but that he wanted the mouth of at least two or three witnesses to be able to confirm a matter uh, that there was more validity to it and to verify that an event had actually happened and of course uh, certainly God just understands human nature and the reality is is that People lie. Uh, that's just the bottom line. Uh, and I'm sure you have been on the receiving end on an occasion before where somebody gave their testimony uh, about something in your life or what happened in your life or maybe what you did uh, and whether it was just a complete boldface lie, a fabricated story or just an exaggerated story where maybe what happened all of a sudden from their account becomes quite a bit more exaggerated uh, in the uh, telling of the accounts and some details are left out and the story's a little twisted and distorted of course to their advantage to make you look a lot more negative or uh, worse than what you really were even in a situation and you know, God understands that so God says look to validate the accounts of accuracy of what take place to make sure that people are protected uh, so that a person maybe who is guilty of something uh, is not held more liable to a greater degree if they did not really do things to the degree that's being described. Uh, that's one safety protocol as well as that there are occasions where somebody may just be a false witness and that's what God's going to go on to address in the next verses where people may just maybe because of you know ill intent towards somebody or they're a troublemaker uh, or there's somebody who perhaps you know has some ill will towards someone animosity hatred whatever the motivations may be that people at times will just lie to try and you know get their own advantage in a situation or try and get somebody into trouble or cause an issue or whatever and of course this principle was used therefore to govern the social affairs the civil affairs and even spiritually regarding the recounting of sin on top of just criminal 
affairs. And Paul draws this uh, uh, aspect in the New Testament on occasion. In fact, one of the occasions he uses this for is to safeguard uh, the reputation of the spiritual leaders in the church. There in 1 Timothy, Paul uh, says that uh, the church is not to entertain an accusation against an elder except by the mouth of two or three witnesses. And he draws upon this spiritual principle from the Old Testament to say, look, uh, not to say that a spiritual leader can't at times err. Uh, they can. Uh, we have the potential to sin and to fail. Uh, and unfortunately, perhaps we have all seen before spiritual leaders do things that are you know, spiritually, morally wrong, commit sin and wrongdoing. But yet God also understands the reality of human nature and how Satan likes to work uh, in those kind of situations. So the Bible says that unless there are at least two or three witnesses that can validate the facts that yes, this person is guilty of doing this. Yes, this elder pastor is, you know, liable for these things. Uh, that it's not even to be entertained. Uh, so if uh, somebody is to heap an accusation against a pastor, against an elder, it's one person. The Bible says if it's only one person, unless somebody else can validate that, you're not even to entertain it. It's not even to be taken into account because the reality is, is that could just be a bitter person you know who didn't like the counsel they got from a pastor or you know maybe have you know a chip on their shoulder regarding something and people cause division and problems and so we need to be careful of those kind of things so just good wisdom God establishes judicially among the congregation of his people spiritually to safeguard against those things verse 16 he now begins to address those who would be false witnesses, who would obviously do what the concern was in the 15th verse. He says, verse 16, if a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord. So if there's a discrepancy, two different stories, uh, they were to bring both parties before the Lord, before the priests and the judges, those who represented the authority of God and spiritual wisdom and judicial counsel who serve in those days. And the judges, it says, shall make a careful inquiry. The idea is look into facts. Not opinions, not who sounds the most persuasive, uh, good judicial exercise is you put on a blindfold and you listen to the facts. You accumulate the facts. You don't go off of, you know, well, what did this person say or who sounded more persuasive? Again, the book of Proverbs says, you know, he who answers a matter before he hears it, it's a folly and a shame to him. And sometimes we can all be guilty. Listen, quite frankly, even just in relationships as Christians, we have to be careful. It's not just judges that do this. We hear a matter and we already begin to come up with our determination and our decision before we really hear out the entire matter. Or the Bible also says in the book of Proverbs that you know one person sounds really convincing until his neighbor comes and cross-examines him. And sometimes we hear one side of a story. Maybe it's a marriage relationship or maybe just even two Christians. You know, this person did this and they're doing that. And, and we just hear one side of the story and we you know hear it and they share it in their passion and all that kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, before we even pay attention, our heart can very quickly begin to be sympathetic and we start to gravitate towards a certain person when the reality is that's very impartial that we didn't take the time before we began to develop those convictions and say maybe i should hear 
from the other side. Maybe I should go seek out the other side and realize there's always, you know, kind of two sides to every matter, two stories to every situation. So again, judicially, this is how they were to operate. And I think we need to be sensitive to those kind of things as well. When there's discrepancies, when there's problems among people. So the judges, it says, the priests, the spiritual leaders, those in those role of authority, it says they were to give careful examination to the situation careful inquiry and indeed if the witness who came forward accusing is a false witness look at this who has testified falsely against his brother so they lied trying to get them in trouble then you shall do verse 19 to him as he thought to have done to his brother so you shall put away the evil from among you so if you came bringing an accusation that would have resulted perhaps in the sentence or the punishment of that person uh, maybe getting whatever, you know, a five-year sentence or, or whatever, if it came to light that you were a false witness, you were guilty of perjury or false witness or, you know, telling stories and making up lies, trying to get them in trouble, then the punishment for that was whatever accountability and sentence they would have served you now serve their same sentence. You now serve five years for being a false witness. If you were trying to accuse them of something that was a capital crime in the death sentence, that would mean you, if you were revealed were a false witness, you would then serve the death sentence. So it was kind of a good deterrent against not lying. <laughs> uh, it, it kind of weeded out liars a little bit, you know, because you knew if you wanted the chance trying to be a liar and get away with it, there was something pretty heavy at stake. It wasn't people were going to say, you know, you're just a liar and don't you lie again. And there's a tap on the wrist. God said, no, look, you, 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 are, you are risking ruining someone's reputation, destroying someone's life, potentially causing pain and problems. And, and, and God took that very seriously because that's destructive and that's hurtful. And, and God saw that kind of lying and that kind of self-destructive behavior as just as wrong as the person who would do other things. So God said, okay, whatever crime you were after to, to heap on them, God says, you're now going to serve the same sentence. So God took a very strong stand against this. And it certainly, I'm sure, prohibited a lot of people if they were tempted to lie or be a false witness to not do that. And he says, you know, do that to a few people and you'll, you'll begin to deal as a deterrent with a lying is you'll put away that type of a lying attitude from the people. Verse 20, and those who remain, God says, shall hear and fear. And see, this is the reason for deterrence. You know, this is the reason for people at times being held liable for what they do wrong because it causes fear in the heart of other people. Those who remain shall hear and fear and thereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you he says verse 21 your eye shall not pity in other words you you, you should not let sympathy uh, overwhelm you but life shall be for life eye for eye tooth for tooth hand for hand foot for foot now what god is very simply establishing here from a and again keep in mind we're talking about judicial proceedings here this is not talking about personal relationships, and I want to talk more about that in a minute. This is talking about judicial proceedings in the civil affairs of the nation of Israel as a people collectively. And what God is stating there in verse 21, some people look and say, man, eye for eye, life for life, tooth for tooth, foot for foot. God is very simply saying this, bottom line, in judicial law, he's saying the punishment should fit the crime. 
the punishment should fit the crime. In other words, when, when a punishment or a sentence is given for wrongdoing or criminal capacity, it should not be more strict and severe than it should be, and it should not be less severe or less strict than it should be. In other words, you should not punish somebody to the same degree that stole uh, a, a Three Musketeers bar from Wawa to the same extent you would punish somebody who was a kidnapper and a rapist. God's saying, look, these, these are both crimes. But the punishment needs to fit the crime. And so therefore, the person who stole the candy bar, you don't give them the death penalty and punish them in the same way you would punish a, a, a kidnapper or, or a rapist or a murderer. That would be too strict and too severe. And that's wrong, God's saying. That, that is wrong to do that. Their punishment needs to fit their crime. Yes, some consequence, but it needs to be a wise, fair consequence. In the same way, the other side of that is you don't punish somebody who's a kidnapper or a rapist or a murderer the way you'd punish somebody who got a candy bar by giving rights to the person who's the severe perpetrator. And God says that would be wrong too. That would be just as wrong. You don't give them a lesser penalty because you feel pity that, no, the punishment should fit the crime. Now, again, we look at this, you know, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Understand what God is saying is the punishment should fit the crime. And part of the reason for that as well is because God knows human nature and human nature is always, if you do something to me, I'm not content to just give you equal punishment in return. If you poke out one eye, I'm poking out both eyes, right? If you punch me and knock out a tooth, when I swing back, I want to, you're getting dentures. You know what I mean? Just, you, I'm getting, I'm drawing to get all your teeth out on the, and God knows human nature. So God trying to regulate and put restraint. No, the punishment needs to fit the, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, that there would be a level of restraint. Now, let me just read to you briefly before we move on, Jesus's words from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. Just, just listen to what Jesus says there in the Sermon on the Mount, referring to this verse. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, in other words, in contrast, why? Because the people took that and their attitude became not in civil affairs when judges were making decisions for criminal actions, but in every personal relationship of everyday life that, hey, if, if you poked out my eye, I deserve to poke your eye out too. If you knocked out my tooth, I deserve to knock out you. And, and they began to take this as, in a sense, an endorsement for revenge, as an endorsement to be able to be able to get back at somebody with spite and to the greatest degree that you wanted to and that you should never forgive or overlook or love or be willing to extend compassion or forgiveness. And Jesus saw that beginning to happen. So he says, you've heard that it was said an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. So Jesus gives this Christian ethic, which is an ethic of forgiveness. 
compassion. Letting revenge be taken care of by God and saying, Lord, yes, I was wronged, but you're my father. And in the same way, if anybody ever did anything to one of my children, God help them. And we have a heavenly father. And Jesus says, listen, your heavenly father is not going to let something be done wrong to you and not take care of it on his terms. You don't need to take matters into your own hand and instead as a representative of Christ in his compassion and love and forgiveness, we represent Jesus. Jesus said instead, we should seek to seek to refrain from revenge, refrain from retaliation, but instead walk in love towards people. And listen, that's not possible naturally. These are supernatural things. I read that just like you do and I say, wow. I mean, that, that's, that sounds extremely difficult. I mean, very, very hard to do. I heard one man tell the story years ago in regards to this. If, you know, somebody slaps you on one cheek, turn the other cheek also. And you know, he's coming and telling a Christian mentor of his, a guy that had just gotten saved not too long ago. Listen, I don't, you know, I need to, you know, share something with you. I was at the job site the other day and this guy got mouthy and, you know, and, and, and he, he, he slugged me in the mouth. And he said, well, what did you do? And he said, well, I got up afterwards and I said, all right go for it and he said and then he punched me in the other side of my face and he said wow that's incredible praise the lord and he said well what happened afterwards he said i knocked him out cold because jesus didn't say what to do after that (laughs) i gave him both cheeks but there was no more instruction after that so then i laid him out you know and i mean and then that human nature i mean we look at that and we go man that's hard pray for your enemies, you know, love your enemies. I mean, that's, that's difficult. It's impossible apart from the spirit of Christ within us. It's only as the spirit of Jesus works in us that any of us can do that. We're all growing in that area. But that is what we're called to. And I point that out because, again, Jesus addresses this in relation to this eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life, because Jesus is trying to say to people, listen, that was given for judicial proceedings, for civil matters where the judges and leaders of the land would deal with you know, criminal and wrongdoing that would happen among the society of people civilly. And that's where that was to be exercised. That was not to be something where it was taken as, in a sense, a license to be used for personal relationships. In personal relationships, Jesus calls us to love, to forgive to not retaliate, to not feel the need to you know, exercise punishment back towards someone when we have been harmed in some way. Now, that being said, let me also say this and turn back with me if you're over in Matthew 5 to, to this chapter. That also means this. Just because Jesus says, if your enemy strikes you on one cheek, turn the other also, forgiveness is that. What Jesus gives as instruction for personal relationships should not be used judicially to govern a land. Because if we start to use that mentality and we allow victims, you know, to in a sense not be taken care of and and criminal people in the world have all the rights in the world. Oh, we should just forgive and waive everything. Listen, criminals will take over our land. Talk to any police officer. They'll tell you that real quick. Uh, They'll take over the land. So this needs to, to be understood properly. This is what people need judicially that police officers and, and those who are in places of authority would regulate evil in a society, but personal relationships, Jesus gives us the right instruction of how we're to respond in love 
and forgiveness. So chapter 20 in Deuteronomy continues on by saying now some instruction to them regarding warfare and how they were to regulate warfare when they would enter into that as a people. So it now begins to address that subject. He says, when you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid, he says, of them. Here's the reason why. For the Lord your God is with you who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So take notice, chapter 20, verse 1, he says there, not if you go out to battle, he says when you go out to battle. Now they're about to enter into the promised land, right? They're going to walk in God's will for their life. That's God's purpose and plan for them to inherit the land and to be able to experience all the goodness of God. But notice, part of the promised land experience involved battles still. There were going to be battles to fight. It was going to be a place of conflict. There were going to be enemies. There was going to be opposition. There were going to be things that were going to threaten them and intimidate them and resist them and come against them. And God doesn't say, if you should run into a battle, not that I anticipate that. God says, when you go out to battle against your enemies, part of the life in the spirit, part of the promised life for them and part of the life in the spirit for us is a life of fighting battles. It's fighting battles against the enemies of the things of Christ, the world, the flesh, the devil. Uh, the reality is this, is when you and I got saved and became a Christian, just like Israel entering into the promised land, in a sense, one battle ended and another one started. The battle with the things of the world and all the, you know, our sinful nature, that ended and we made peace with God. Our battle with God came to a cessation and we raid the white flag of surrender. Now we're at peace with God and we enjoy that. But a whole brand new battle started, if you didn't notice. <laughs> you got drafted into an army now where there's this constant conflict because you're a representative of Christ in the kingdom of God where the flesh and the spirit are always wrestling against one another inside of us. And the world is working in opposition to our morals and our convictions and what we know is right and righteous. And the devil is after us, attacking us in their spiritual warfare. Uh, and, and because of that, the Lord says to them, listen, when you go into the promised land, there are going to be battles there. Uh, and they would engage battles. And again, that their entrance into the promised land, it's a type, a picture of the life of the life in the spirit as we've talked about before. So he says to them, look, when you come in and you face battles against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and people more numerous, numerous than you. So what's God saying? You're going to engage in battles where you're going to be outmatched. You're going to be outnumbered. You're going to be uh, out-equipped. And, and, and it's going to be very terrifying. You're going to face Goliaths. You're going to face things that are too big for you to handle that you look at and say, I don't know how in the world I could possibly overcome that. I don't know how in the world I could defeat that. I, uh, we're going to get destroyed. We are outmatched. We're outnumbered. We're overpowered here. And, and, and God says, when that happens, don't be afraid. Now, if I were them, I would say, can you give me one good reason why I should not be afraid when I'm facing something that is completely stronger than me, bigger than me, too hard for me to overcome, and it looks like I'm going to get crushed and get defeated. How could I possibly not be afraid? Well, God answers that. It's that word right there in verse 1, for. That's a reason word. Here's why. He says, do not be afraid for the Lord your God is with you. The presence of God is with you. And one person in God is a majority. 
And the Bible says if God is for us, who can be against us? The idea there literally is if God is for us, who can successfully be against us? Things will be against us, but who can successfully be against us? Because the presence of God, the power of God is with us. And whether it was them fighting battles where they were totally outmatched, because the presence of God was with them, so many times they'd be victorious. They'd conquer Jericho. They'd conquer other people groups where they would be completely outmatched, but it was the presence of God and his intervention in the battle. And their success or their failure in their battles was determined by one thing their relationship and their dependency upon the Lord. To the extent they were in right relationship with God and depending upon God and letting God lead and realizing, Lord, this is your battle. We're just the soldiers in it. But the battle is yours and the victory is yours and the deliverance comes. To the extent that they believed that and walked in that, they were victorious. To the extent when they did not believe and they sought to take matters into their own hands or they were presumptuous or they didn't depend upon God or they were fearful and shrunk back, they would lose and they would be overcome. So here the Lord's trying to encourage them. He says, look, remember, I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. In other words, God's saying, if you're ever beginning to get fearful when you're facing an enemy that's more numerous and, and, and bigger than you, just remember what I've already done for you. He says, you remember that whole Egypt thing? Did you ever think you were going to get out of there? Did you ever think I could have possibly... Do you remember the whole parting of the Red Sea thing God's saying? Do you remember that? You remember that parting of the Red Sea when it looked absolutely impossible and there had never been a way made in that situation before and I made a way when there had never possibly been a way before and I miraculously made a way and I got you through it and you never thought that you'd get through it but I got you through it and I got you to the other side and God's saying, listen, I haven't changed. My muscles haven't atrophied. I'm no weaker now than I was then. If I've done that for you, rely on that past faithfulness for your present confidence to not be fearful, to believe that I'll be with you. And look at this verse too. He says, so it shall be when you're on the verge of battle. So when they were about to enter into a battle that the priest, this was sort of Israel's military chaplain, the priest shall approach and speak to the people and give them a little pep talk. And he shall say to them, hear, O Israel, today you're on the verge of battle with your enemies do not let your heart be faint. Do not be afraid. Do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies and to save you. So this is a really neat thing. The role of the priest, interesting, when they were on the verge of the battle, one of the priests in Israel on that day, one of the spiritual leaders, was to come forward and, and kind of, as I said, almost like a military chaplain. He was supposed to give them a little pep talk before they went out to battle. And basically, his role was, as, as the spiritual leader, to encourage them to put their confidence in God and to say, listen, yeah, you're about to go into a battle. But he's saying, today, don't let your heart be faint. You don't be discouraged. Trust God, believe God, and, and God's going to save you and God's going to help you and strengthen you. And, and he was to basically just put the people's attention back on the Lord and to send them into battle and say to them, yes, it's going to be a battle, but the Lord's going to be with you and don't be afraid. And he was to just sort of challenge them and strengthen them with words of confidence and encourage them not to be fearful. And just what a, a beautiful thing to be able to put their attention upon the Lord. He is with you. He's going with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. And, and how wonderful the same God 
does the same thing for us in our battles. And listen, you, you may be facing some battles. You, I don't know, maybe tonight you're on the verge of another battle in the midst of the war of the thing that's going on in your life. And maybe you're on the verge of a battle and there are many battles in the midst of a war. Okay, and listen, let me be very honest. You can lose a few battles and still win the war. And maybe you're here tonight and say, oh, I feel like I've been losing some battles recently. So what? In a war, there are many battles. It's not about who wins every battle. Who wins the war at the end? Okay, well, watch, a, watch a boxing match. You can go 15 rounds in boxing. You can go you know, five rounds in mixed martial arts fighting. You can lose a few rounds. You can get halfway knocked out. But if you get back up and ultimately you can still win the fight. And the reality is, is listen, God's not looking for perfection of performance. He's looking for a consistent faith and confidence to say, Lord, I will not fear. I will continue to believe you're with me. You can help me. You will strengthen me. You will give me victory. And the priest, it's just so beautiful, was to strengthen the morale of the soldiers to tell them, don't be afraid. Don't tremble. The Lord, your God, he's going with you. He's going to fight for you against your enemies. He's going to save you. And then verse 5 down through verse 7 and 8 begin to give then some exemptions. Very interesting. Another thing that took place, they could be exempt from military responsibilities. Then the officers, look at it, shall speak to the people saying, what man is there who has built a new house and has not dedicated it yet? The idea is he hasn't moved in and enjoyed the house. He built this great property, really excited, but he hasn't yet had a chance to, to move in and to officially enjoy it. Let him go and return to his house lest he die in battle and another man dedicate it. So uh, if you had built a new house yet and you were you know, excited about it, you didn't get a chance to enjoy it yet, God said you could be exempt. And again, it shows the humanity of the Lord. He said, listen, uh, you can be exempt from the battle. Go back home lest you die in it and you not get to enjoy it again. And why is the reason for that? Because God knew if that type of person went out to the battle, do you know what they'd be thinking about the whole time? Oh, man. I was so looking forward to be able to live in those you know, digs and enjoy that. Oh, man, that, oh, man. And now here, and what if I die? If I die? And what are they going to be? Distracted. And a distracted soldier is a very inefficient soldier. And if instead of being engaged and focused on the battle, their mind is distracted about all these other things, God says they're really not going to be efficient anyway. So you know what? It doesn't prohibit the Lord by saving from many or by few. The Lord says, if their heart's not in it and they're distracted, just send them home then. Just send them home then. If they're more concerned about God, says, I know, send them home. Verse 6, he says, and also, another exemption, what man is there who's planted a vineyard and has not eaten of it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man eat of it. In other words, you've planted a vineyard. You haven't reaped the harvest yet the crop didn't come in which was your form of profit or commerce and god says i want to be out there and, oh man you know i was really gonna you know make a good return on that i was gonna really bank on that and the lord says they'll be distracted they'll be thinking about that the money they could have made so the lord says if they're more concerned about the money they would have made and the money they're going to have to give up he says send them back home let them be exempt from the battle Verse 7, and what man is there who's betrothed to a woman? The idea, again, in that culture, that was a form of engagement. It was a formal engagement, the betrothal period, where you entered into a official, uh, in a sense, engagement, much more binding than today's type of engagement in our culture, where for a year, 
you, in a sense, were considered legally married, but you had not yet consummated the marriage. You had not had sexual relations. You hadn't had the ceremony yet. In fact, when you were betrothed to someone, it actually took a legal certificate of divorce to get out of that relationship. That's how binding the betrothal was. It was a period to demonstrate their purity. They would not live together, the couple. It was agreed upon. They would get married. The terms were set. He was making preparations. She was demonstrating her purity to the culture for that year by showing that she was not pregnant. There had been no infidelity or other relationships with anyone else. Again, this remember, or that they were not sexually active. Remember, that was the whole issue of why it was such an uproar when all of a sudden Mary was found with child during her betrothal to Joseph. And because in that culture, it looked like, oh, we see why you want to get married. So that year was an opportunity for the woman to demonstrate her purity and for them to demonstrate as a couple, we're not getting married to fix a problem. We're getting married because we genuinely want to get married. And so you can imagine how hard that was, of course, for Mary when she was betrothed to Joseph and she was found with child. And people say, all right, Mary, tell us the truth. Who is it? Because Joseph's saying it's not him. Well, it was the Holy Spirit. Imagine how weird she sounded, poor Mary. <laughs> I always think about how hard that must have been for Mary. Really, it was God. I'm telling you, it's God. Mary, you've really gone off the deep end. You know, Bad enough, and now you're trying to put the blame on God for you know, your pregnancy or whatever. So, again, if someone was engaged, they were in love. You know, you see, you know what that's like when people are engaged. You know, they're caught up in the you know, love and infatuation of looking towards a marriage. Again, if somebody was betrothed to be married, let him go home and return to his house, lest the poor guy die and then another person marry the woman that he wanted to get married to. So these were exemptions. They could be sent home. In fact, God told them to, if you would, almost sort of weed out some of the, the ranks among the troops by asking these questions and giving these people exemptions to be freed to go back home. And again, the reason why is all of those things would have caused distraction. And God did not want undistracted people engaged in the conflict because when people are distracted and, and concerned about all these other things, they're not going to be efficient in fighting the battles of the Lord. Uh, and again, Paul picks up on this idea in 2 Timothy where he says that he who is you know, uh, a soldier of the Lord should not get entangled in the affairs of the world so that they can please the one who enlisted them as a soldier. And sometimes we, unfortunately, can get really distracted with some of the same things that are described here and kind of become not real effective for Jesus as a soldier in the Lord's army. And, and think of the three things that are represented here, verse 5, 6, and 7. You could say what's represented there is material possessions, a house, the planning and getting the returns of a vineyard, financial gain, commerce, and then the third thing there in verse 7, relationships. And are they not quite honestly, a lot of times, again, nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves, but a lot of times is it not true that as Christians, people can get very distracted by possessions and material things and money and relationships, and they kind of become ineffective in their spiritual service and fighting the Lord's battles. And so the Lord says, you know what? They're distracted. So let them go work out their distractions first. Uh, and again, God says, we'll, we'll take those who are fully in. Those who are fully committed, we'll take them to the battle. And God says, we'll work with them, but let them be exempt. So these soldiers were released on those exemptions. Verse 8, but then the officers, one other exemption, shall speak further to the people 
and say, what man is there who is, notice, fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest the heart of his brethren, notice, faint like his heart. So what did that do? That protected the morale of the soldiers. So the Lord said, if you're going into battle and if there's anybody that's fearful, anybody that's faint-hearted and they are consumed with the spirit of fear rather than faith and confidence that God's in it and God's going to do it, the Lord said, do not jeopardize the morale of the rest of the ranks because let's be honest, is it not true, gang? Fear is contagious. It's infectious. Next time you're somewhere in a crowded place, I'll give you an experiment. All of a sudden, you and one other person just start running and watch what happens. Now, I'm just, that, don't, please don't do that for real. <laughs> we heard this at church, you know, as you're getting arrested. Yeah, three people got stampeded. We heard that at a Bible study. But, but it's, it's living proof it's not true. All of a sudden, if you're in an amusement park, a busy place, whatever, and a bunch of people start running, what do you do? You get freaked out and you just start, you don't even know what you're running from. But fear is so contagious. And the same thing is true among people in attitudes and talk. You know, all of a sudden somebody's fearful, they're anxious or negativity begins to, and, and that's really contagious. And so the Lord says, listen, that would really, it'll spread among the morale of the ranks. And he says, look, I'd rather have a few confident, faith-filled individuals that I can work through by my power than have people that are dispersed among the ranks that are doubting and questioning and fearful because he says that will destroy the morale of the troops. And the same is true spiritually. Boy, you know, this kind of thing can be a real sort of wet cloth, if you would, on the work of God's Spirit sometimes among the body of Christ and Christians. You know, you have a few people say, I think the Lord's leading to do this, and we should trust God for this, or we should move in this direction. And somebody says, well, I don't know. Well, I don't know. And then all of a sudden that spirit of fear starts to come out, and all of a sudden everybody else starts to shrink back and get faint-hearted, and it can really be a very detrimental thing. So the Lord says these individuals, uh, they're not good qualified individuals to engage in the Lord's battle. It's better that they just go home uh, and keep those who have confidence in the Lord. And remember in the days of Gideon, read, you know, Judges chapter 6 and 7 and 8, God did that in the day of Gideon, remember. The battle was called for. Gideon calls people to join him to go and fight against the Midianites and 22,000 people showed up. And that was a pretty good response, 22,000 people, especially considering the fact that the Midianites had at least 132,000 people, which means already that meant the odds were four to one. They were behind. And then God, looking at that, remember, says to Gideon, Gideon, there's, there's, there's too many people. So here's what I want you to do. Tell everybody who's afraid to go home. And over half of the people left and went back home. God said, I, if, if they're fearful, tell them don't worry about it. They can go home. God wanted people who were confident, who were faith-filled, because that, in the same way, is a very encouraging thing. And, of course, you know the story. God even thinned the ranks all the way down to 300 uh, because God wanted to get the glory and show that he's not limited by how many or how few. All he's looking for is willing, yielded vessels who are willing to believe that it's him that does it and are willing to walk in that confidence. Verse 9, And so it shall be, he says, when the officers have finished speaking to the people that they that shall then make captains of the armies to lead the people. So once they sort of thin the ranks, as God instructed them to on the verge of battles, then notice God also cared about order and rank. He says, then make captains 
to lead the people. So again, when God works, he works within the realm notice of leadership and order and authority. These are important components to the work of God among his people. And now we get some instructions regarding how they were to handle battles in different situations. He says, when you go near to a city to fight against it, then you shall proclaim an offer of peace to it. And it shall be that if they accept your offer of peace to open and open to you, then all the people who are found in it shall be placed under tribute to you and serve you. Now, if the city will not make peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God delivers it into your hands, you shall strike every male in the city with the edge of the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and all that is in the city and its spoil shall plunder for yourself and you shall eat of the enemy's plunder, which the Lord your God gives you. Key verse, verse 15, take note. Thus you shall do to all the cities which are very far from you. The idea is outside of the land of Canaan. This is the order of how they were to fight battles outside of the land, which are not of the cities of these nations. So notice, God's going to give different instructions for how they were to engage in battles and warfare depending upon what the situation and circumstance was. And if they were fighting nations farther off in distant lands surrounding territories, maybe that attacked them and they were responding or so forth, God says, when you go against those nations, I want you to extend peace first. I'm not looking for you to just go out and mow everybody down. He says, I want you to offer peace first. Try and be peaceable. God says, I want you to try and extend peace first. Try and work in a way where there's a minimal amount of conflict. Again, God's a God of peace. He's a peacemaker. So he says, offer terms of peace. See if they'll accept it. If so, then t- you know, in a sense, let them become under your tribute. And, and you can collect, in a sense, taxes from them. If not... Then he says, engage in warfare. And if you do engage in warfare, God says, you may put to death the males, but he asks for restraint and compassion against the women and the children in these far off lands in regards to those type of conflicts. So that was the protocol for distant far off enemies. But verse 16, notice of the cities of the peoples, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance that is the land of Canaan, which we've been primarily learning about, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you, lest, again he repeats, lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations, which they've done for their gods, and you then sin against the Lord your God. So God gives them, notice, different instructions. For distant lands, God says, try and be peaceable, try and avoid conflict. I'm not a God that you know finds pleasure and enjoyment in warfare, but in the land that they were going into that God wanted to give to them, as we've talked about many times before, because of the incredible moral depravity of the people, the Canaanite people, of the practices and the wickedness where for hundreds of years God was restraining and waiting and looking for... And because they had become so evil and immoral, not only was God just giving Israel the land, but God was judging the Canaanite people and he was just using Israel as his military tool to judge them nationally. So God says, therefore, when you enter into that land... Don't let anything remain. You need to eliminate everything because the judgment of God was coming against them as a people and Israel were just his chosen vessel 
to implement the judgment of God and then God would give them the land as a result of that afterwards. So God warns them to respond accordingly in each situation. And you know, I look at this and I see the wisdom of God in this because I think we need to be careful of trying to push formulas and patterns and think that in every situation where there's the opportunity for conflict or potential tension or a battle, look, don't just go guns a-blazing into every situation and say, well, in the last battle, this is, and, and all of a sudden you're going to find yourself at times, I'm going to find, I'm, you're going to make really big mistakes. Because different situations and different battles and different conflicts sometimes require different approaches. And sometimes the approach is to be a little more peaceable and to be a little more passive and to be patient and to try and maybe you know, work out a peaceable solution. And, and that's the right approach. And to go too aggressively and too hard and to go come, that would be out of tune with what the will of God is in that situation. And then there may be other occasions where the Lord is saying, look, in that's this situation, you need to be firm and you need to be direct and I don't want any compromise. And you can't make a peaceable, in a sense, situation out of this because this person or this situation is so far off the radar that I don't want you to enter into something that's going to ultimately stumble you where you make concessions and compromise and then you ultimately just end up stumbling and sin yourself. And so I think we need to be wise as we face different battles in our life. Again, they're not our battles. Lord, what do you want of me in this situation? How can I walk in a righteous way and be sensitive? What's the Holy Spirit leading you to do in each situation? Again, they were to enter into different battles in different ways according to how God instructed because God knew what he was doing in the situation, seeing the bigger picture for their lives. Well, verse 19, he says, And when you besiege a city for a long time, that was again typically how they'd starve a people out as they'd besiege a city, while making war against it to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. If you can eat of them, do not cut them down to use in the siege, for the tree of the field is man's food. Only the trees which you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down to build siege works, that is, you know, again, the ramps and so forth, against the city that makes war with you until it's subdued. So, again, talk about just good practical wisdom there. The Lord says, okay, when you besiege a city and you need lumber and wood to build the siege ramps and the walls and so forth to overtake it in that way, the Lord says, my heart is not that you would just use excessive force and you just start damaging and destroying everything. So he says, make a distinguishment between fruit-bearing trees and non-fruit-bearing trees. And if you have non-fruit-bearing trees, use the wood for that. But the trees that would produce fruit and food... God says, don't be senseless. Don't just cast off restraint and just you know, respond in the emotion of the moment and, 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 and in a sense have the attitude of, well, listen, we just need to fix the problem. And, and, and God says, don't, you need to look ahead. And he says, that's food. That, that's, good, that's good fruit there. And what's God saying? You stewardship. You stewardship, the Lord is saying. Don't be a poor steward. Don't just respond impulsively in the moment. God's saying, look beyond the moment. And listen, I think that's a real good word of wisdom for all of our lives because a lot of times in the, you know, in the moment when we're engaged in something and, and when we're dealing with a situation, a lot of times we are so interested in just what's the immediate need in the moment for, for, for you know, and we fail to look 
What's that going to yield tomorrow? What might that yield a week from now? What might that yield a month from now, a year from now? And all we do is think, look, well, I need to build a siege ramp right now. So we just take out our hatchet and... Who cares what I destroy, what I ruin, what I waste, what I you know put an end to? Listen, we need to be stewards. And a stewardship means... You look beyond just the present moment that you're in. You don't look at just what's the immediate need. You look beyond a day down the road, a week down the road, and you think, hmm, yes, there is a need here, but what's the right way to go about it? Yes, I need to address this here, but what's the right way to go about that as a good steward because that may have a bearing and effect on what's down the road. And I just encourage you, if you're facing something right now, don't just in emotion, in your own thoughts, in the impulse, just respond to just get a quick solution. Look for resolution, the full resolution of what's best in regards to what you're handling and dealing with. Let's stand together. Let's pray. When there's